Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator. Sudden loss of weight might be cause for anxiety, but one good thing at least, it makes the pallbearer's job a whole lot lighter. The National Broadcasting Company presents William Gargan in another transcribed drama of mystery and adventure with America's number one detective, Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Barry Craig speaking. Once every year, an epidemic of lunacy sweeps across the nation. Some call it midsummer madness. You get sunstroke by day and moonstruck by night. I got my dose of it in a resort hotel. Jubilee Villa, the big neon sign across the roof said. Jubilee Villa, where days were given to pinochle and golf, and nights were given to lawn dancers under big sheltering pines. Like everybody else, I was dancing. Unlike everybody else, I had a genuine, non-dyed, natural blonde babe in my arms. Oh, you danced divinely, Barry. Hmm. You'd only put that in writing, Blondie. In writing? I collect testimonials. Oh. Blondie was a vacation guest with a ruby mouth and a slim, trim panatella chassis. Not an extra ounce of butterfat or chocolate bonbon anywhere on her. The name she gave was Linda Paris. I was kicking my heels at Jubilee Villa at Linda's own request. She phoned me to please come. What she had on her lovely mind, I didn't know yet. I was uh, too busy totaling up what she had on the outside. Well, I suppose the time has come to talk, Barry. Cruel words. You've probably been wondering why I telephoned you and dragged you up here. I stopped wondering after the second highball. Uh, down that path there, there's a, there's a great barber. We can be alone there. You've enticed me. Only to talk about my problem. Oh. I really do have a problem, Barry. Yeah, I know, with men. You've had that same one problem since the age of three, I'll bet. But leave us sojourn. A great barber under the moon with a bewitching blonde at hand means all things to all men. But to a confidential cop, it only means work, police work. You have facilities for finding out about people. I do. Now, who do you want to find out about? Stuart Stoner. Who's he? A guest here at the hotel. So you want a confidential police check on him? Yes. I want to do the conservative thing before I... Before getting too amished? Before getting engaged. And you're afraid Stuart is a low-down fortune hunter. Is that the number of it? Oh. Well, he led me to believe that he, too, is rich. I'm assigned. What are the vital statistics on Stuart Stoner? Hometown, family, business, etc., and so forth. I know nothing except that his people are supposed to be in Milwaukee society. You'll know more when I'm through. Milwaukee, here I come. One thing about a long train ride, catch up on your back reading. Came the day after tomorrow, I returned to Jubilee Villa, full of news from Milwaukee. Bad news for Blondie. It's... It's all so incomprehensible to me. Then let me repeat myself. There is no Stoner family in Milwaukee society and no young aristocrat named Stuart Stoner. Then Stuart is a masquerader. It would seem. And so are you, too, a masquerader, Blondie. I checked both ends of the matrimonial question mark. 
I'm a bug for thoroughness. Linda Paris of Brockton, Massachusetts. No such she-animal. Now, what's the real name, Blondie? Mary Ranseroff. A working girl. A wage slave. Department store ribbon counter? No, I'm a manicurist. You're putting on quite a big show here at Jubilee Villa. Where'd you get the wardrobe? And the $55 a day? My savings. Your pitch to snag a rich husband? Just as easy to love a rich man. Touche? All right, assignment completed. Pay me off and kiss me goodbye. No. No? I still want to know about Stuart. Like you, he's fortune hunting. Oh. Well, I... Well, you see... You go for him. Nevertheless, and notwithstanding. Okay, then. I'll stick around a while. On the day I go, you can call me the guy who murdered Cupid. I didn't buck Stuart Stoner right away. I made a study of him first from afar. Watched his behavior like a guinea pig behind glass. A guinea pig with a pencil-lined mustache. I watched him whack a tennis ball. Well, nice. I joined in the gallery applause. I watched him elbow up to the oval bar in the cafe lounge. Much too green in the gills for an athlete and a haunted look around his eyes, like sleep came tough. And ordering the type of drink guaranteed to drown anyone's sorrow. Steve, another one of the same. A uh, double. I watched him playing cards in the casino. Two-handed game for stakes that could lift the national debt in Pongo Pongo. Well, that beats me. Guess it's not my night. Well, better luck tomorrow. That's what you said yesterday. Uh, I'm afraid I'm a little short of cash. Oh, check is fine, Stoner. Huh. And if you're overdrawn at the bank, an IOU's just as good. <laughs> $6,000 loss for the afternoon's play. But what made it especially interesting for me was the face of the winner. I knew the face. I, I'd seen it around, on the streets and in the rogues gallery. Lou Latimer, a con man, card shop, and plain crook. The question I asked myself was, why was a card shop accepting IOUs from a phony vacationer posing as a son of wealth? Latimer worked like a cop worked. He checked the pedigree of every sucker he sat down to cards with. Latimer had to know that Stuart Stoner was a made-up name. So why was Latimer accepting paper instead of cash? That evening, after a supper orgy of boshed and baked herring, I tackled Stuart Stoner in person. He was sprawled on a hammock, letting the supper digest. Evening. Hello. Craig's the name. Barry Craig. You, uh, don't feel sociable? Frankly, I don't. That's a surprise. Why is it surprising? I've watched you around the clock. Tennis, cards, and chit-chat. I've seldom seen a more gregarious and sociable guy. Well, maybe it's a question of the kind of company. That remark meaning? You interpret it. You draw the line where I'm concerned. Now, if you don't mind... You want to be alone. Look, Mr. Craig, I've an absolute right... Don't let your thermometer rise, Buster. Who warned you off me? Why, why do you say that? Because that's my guess about our unfriendly little situation. So who was it? Oh, a friend of mine. Your card partner, Latimer? What did Latimer tell you? That I was an unsavory character or something? You're very astute. All right, he warned me that you were, well, some kind of operator. Underhanded, a type that... Works vacation resorts. Uh, words to that effect, yes. 
What have I now told you Latimer was describing himself? I'd expect you to say that. You would? Latimer also told me you'd lie if trapped, that you'd reverse everything. That you were clever like that. Look, Buster, Latimer's a card shop and a crook. And let's settle a question of my veracity once and for keeps. I'm a detective. Here, squint your eyes at my credentials. The, uh, badge is authentic? Did Latimer also warn you that I'd flash a phony chicken inspector's badge? I'm... I'm confused. So am I. What particularly confuses me is why a smart boy like Latimer would collect your worthless IOUs. My worthless... You're here using an alias. The name Stuart Stoner is made up. You've been handing a doll named Linda Paris a line of bunk. You let the impression circulate that you're loaded, filthy rich. But the odds are a hundred to one you haven't even got cash enough to pay your board bill. You were saying? I have nothing to say. Don't please heckle me anymore. I'm... I'm spinning. Yeah, you are. In a steaming sweat. Your eyes rolling. You subject to fits? Uh, no, no. <laughs> no, no fits. Just... Just... Every now and then a feeling of suffocation. Like... Like now I... I blank... Blank out. Stoner. Blank out he did big. Eyes staring blindly and not a flutter to him. Hardly a pulse. And his face contorted in ugly red folds, like it was an outside picture of some deep agony inside. I left him as he was and went for help. The house doctor had been gone for almost 20 minutes before Stoner could put words together coherently. Uh, please, don't broadcast what you saw tonight. You seem to slip into a fog then, Stoner. I got the feeling your eyes were seeing sights you were trying to shut out. My eyes were seeing sights? The eyes of memory, let's say. Well, like you were looking over your shoulder into yesterday. Like you were an amnesiac. What's in yesterday that gets you by the throat, Stoner? Oh, you're, you're talking talk I don't understand. Stuart Stoner, you call yourself. But what's your right name? Some other time, huh? If you insist on this sort of weird interrogation right now, I... I just... I just want to go to bed. Want help getting upstairs? No, no, I... Want nothing from you. I'll help Stuart to his room. Hello, Stuart. Um, Margot. The house doctor told me you'd fainted. I came to see you. Introduce me, Stoner. Uh, Mr. Craig, Margot Swift. Hello. Mr. Craig? You want him, lady? He's all yours. Margot, if I can just have your arm. I watched him move away slowly, her arm around his waist and a love light in her eyes. A tightly trussed look to her figure, cold black hair, colored gypsy kerchiefs around her neck, and a look of experience to her. Older than Stuart, but you'd need her birth certificate to prove it. She was that preserved. Linda and Margot, blonde and brunette. Stoner was doing okay with the ladies. A while later in my room, while wrestling with a knot in my tie as a prelude to showering before bed, I found a typewritten note propped against my bureau mirror. The management regrets the need to terminate your stay due to a prior reservation made for room 211. Room 211 was my room. There was a deadline noted on the bottom of the eviction note. We would appreciate possession of room 211 by 9 p.m. 9 p.m. was one minute away. Correction. It was 9 p.m. I acted calm in the emergency. I tore up the note. That night, I had a crazy dream. I dreamed there was a load of iron hanging from the ceiling like a chandelier. 
hanging on a line with my head, ready to drop if the length of wire holding it ever snapped. I lay there making book the wire wouldn't snap. I was wrong. It did snap. When the iron dropped, I promptly stopped dreaming. <laughs> Midsummer's Night's Dream, you can find yourself in strange surroundings. I imagine I found myself on the bottom of a lake. But that was too crazy, even for midsummer. What was a fact was, I... The lake lay around me only ankle height. I was plopped in reeds that were taller than me. The kind of reeds you find around the edge of country lakes... I had water in my nose and ears, and a stagnant pool of slop in my stomach. If I survived, I, I'd need a stomach pump. I lay where I was, listening to owl hoots. The owl had hooted himself hoarse before I became aware of the lump on my head. What had actually happened dawned on me very slowly. I'd been slugged senseless in room 211, carried to a nearby lake and tossed in. Attempted murder. Somebody was very careless about whether I lived or died. When I was up to it, I had questions to put to the friendly management of Jubilee Villa. The guy managing Jubilee Villa looked like a wax museum exhibit. Skin you'd hate to touch unless you were a fellow zombie. And horn-rimmed glasses with lenses so thick his eyes magnified into the size of golf balls. A brass nameplate on the desk read Otto Henser. His attitude towards me was downright contemptuous. Mr. Craig, you expect me to give credence to this fantastic story? I do expect. Mr. Craig, you suffer from sunstroke. I wear a visor cap in the sun. Well, then, it is too much to drink. A man with your imagination should never drink. I've been on buttermilk since I arrived here. Look, Hanser, I don't imagine being slugged and thrown into a lake. Well, then, at least thank your stars that you are alive. No fault of my assailants. My guess there is he didn't figure I'd land in a shallow bed. Then you insist on this preposterous story. At the top of my lungs. Someone in Jubilee Villa resents my being around. I'm a meddler. There's some scheme afoot and... Wait. Yes, Mr. Craig. The management of Jubilee Villa, that's you, wanted me out of the place at 9 p.m. tonight. Why, Hanser? A prior reservation for room 211. Sure that's the only reason? It is the reason, of course. I didn't comply with the vacate request. I went to bed. And from there, I was forcibly evicted. I woke up in the lake. Mr. Craig, there is no connection between our simple request that you give up your room in this, this hallucination. I'm getting awfully tired of you insinuating I'm a nut. All right, then. I will accept your story. And your explanation of it on that basis? A prowler. There have been other incidents, come to think of it. A, a, a trespasser entered your room. You were assaulted. And carried a half mile from my room to the lake. Mr. Craig, the criminal mind is something unpredictable. There, there, there is no logical pattern. Paul, you've sure been trying to sell me one idea after another, Hanser. Why? Because I'm perplexed. Like you are perplexed. I think one thing and then I think another. I see. Right now, Hanser, I'm thinking one thing. And what is that? That you could be a grade-A 14-carat phony. The 
next day, I let the con man in card shop Blue Latimer tell me a few lies. Man has a right to live down his past, Craig. No question. I had a few brushes with the law once. Sure, I don't deny it. You served a few sentences? One sentence. Pardon the slander. I'm a changed man today. Pillar of the community. San Quentin community? Oh, the way you cops love to ride a guy. Beastly of us. Look, I'm a respectable businessman today. What business? Salesman. Selling bunco? Machine tools. What are you doing here at Jubilee Villa? Vacationing. With a deck of cards in every pocket? I don't play cards the same old way. Meaning? I play for pastime. For profit. So I play to win. Who doesn't? Which brings me to a basic question. What? And I owe you. I saw Stuart Stoner give you a $6,000 piece of paper. I want it fairly. Even supposing you did. How come you're accepting paper from a masquerader? A what? A masquerader. The name Stuart Stoner is an alias. The young man is here representing himself fraudulently. Now, wait a minute, Craig. Stoner's loaded. He's from a rich clan. The Stoner's in Milwaukee. He is not. That's only a cardboard front. Stoner is a phony. And you know it, Latimer. How would I know it? Because that's how you operate. Before skinning a sucker, you check every detail of his pedigree back to the day he was born. You know how much he's worth or how little, so you can judge how much to take him for. Well? Well, what you say is a fact that Stone is a phony, then I, I've been rooked, huh? I'm holding worthless paper. <laughs> well, that's not me, huh? It would appear. But I still wonder. Latimer. What? See the giant egg built in in my skull? Up here? Looks nasty. Want to claim credit for it? Oh, the way you try to cut me down. You've some surface polish. You look distinguished in your Bermuda shorts. But you're a mug underneath and a thug. Look, chum, if this heckling session is over... I've got another insult, killer. Killer? Until you convince me otherwise, I'll go on thinking you tried to drown me last night. So long. One minute, Latimer. Now what? A token of my very high regard for you. Love either conquers all or it surrenders. My client, Linda Paris, born plain Mary Ranbaha, ran up the white flag. I'm leaving for home after dinner tonight. Goodbye to Jubilee Villa. Yes, I'm already in packed. Say goodbye to Stoner yet? Oh, we had a long talk over breakfast. And the gist of it? He admitted to having assumed the name of Stuart Stoner. What is his real name? He couldn't say. Barry, he didn't seem to know. Really offering himself as an amnesiac, huh? Look, Blondie, I'm here on your account. I can't follow your example, pack up, scram, and forget. Leave everything unresolved. I'm a cop, at heart and by profession. I want to know who, what, and why is alias Stuart Stoner. I want to know what Lou Latimer's game is and where the management, Otto Henser, fits into the scheme. And Margot. Oh, I'm glad you brought her up. What about the Lady Margot? She and Stuart were close when I first arrived. I suppose I cut Margot out. Stuart began to chase me. Well, I can't blame him now. I've seen Margot in clandestine meetings with that man Latimer down at Pripet Lake. Anything else you've tucked away in your lovely mind as a significant detail? Mm, yes. Henser kept trying to involve me with other male guests as if he... To preserve Stoner for Margot in line with a three-way partnership. Otto Henser, Latimer, and Margot. I don't understand. A three-way scheme connotes loot, 
wolves shearing a lamb. But where's the possible profit in Stuart Stoner? What's the bait for Henser, Latimer, and Margot? Stoner's a phony and masquerader, a deadbeat. Maybe Henser, Latimer, and Margot don't actually know Stoner's a masquerader. If they didn't know, impossible to believe as that is, if they suckered themselves in some attempted badger game, they do know now. I told Latimer that Stoner was a phony. Now, do you want to quit or follow through? I'm a fool not to mind my own... All right, what do we do? Search every inch of Stoner's room and effects. You play lookout while I play burglar. The results of searching Stoner's effects were a little frightening. Later, in a woodsy hideout, Linda and I shivered over what we found. Barry, it's fantastic. Lengths of copper wire, all cut down to convenient size. The tools of a strangler. I, I just can't believe then it. Then try believing Stoner's amazing collection of newspaper clippings. These. Mystery Strangler Terrorizes East End. Dateline, Minneapolis. And this one. Strangler Claims Elderly Victim. Dateline, Seattle. And these similar clippings. Dateline, New York, Boston, Shreveport. For one man, too. Operate east, north, west, and south all over the map. Yes, the scope of it. But this isn't one man's autobiographic collection of himself. It isn't? The dates on the clips cover almost four years. They represent a lot of stranglings and a lot of stranglers. A lot of stranglers. Some of whom have been caught and jailed. I recognize a few of the cases. Then? This is just a collection of clippings. Fetish is the word, I think. The pleasure the collector, call him psychopath, gets comes from the clippings themselves, let's say. The joy in some other fellow's crime. Stuart is a madman. It would appear... A madman or... Or... That's what somebody wants us to think. Mainly wants you to think. Me? So you'd scream and run. Glad to escape a fate worse than... All this is part of a scheme? Well, that's my surmise. But what basis do you have? The character of Henser, Latimer and company. Thoroughgoing connivers who play to win. They knew the cop and me would sooner or later send me up to Stoner's room. This stuff was planted for me to find. Enough to disillusion me in Stoner, but not enough to pinch him. No real evidence of a crime or an actual criminal personality. What now? Well, let's Henser, Latimer and company horse themselves into believing they hold trumps. That you're scared off. That I'm disinterested in any further to do with a nut. We make our fun farewells. We leave Jubilee Villa? Officially only. Unofficially, we're still around. We're holed up somewhere with our eye on this place, watching to see the next move of the gang against Stoner. But what can they want of Stuart? I finally come to the conclusion about that. One, Stoner is an amnesiac. Isn't sure of who he is and where from, etc. Two, he is not a poor masquerader, but a rich one after all. Stuart, rich? Uh-huh. Doe, position. And a good marital catch for Margot. Also a profitable game for Latimer to account for the IOUs. Also a Klondike for Henser. Otherwise, there'd be no reason at all for a plot. Well, that means they know Stuart's true identity. They do, but Stuart doesn't. So will you join me in hiding, doll? Where do you hide with a blonde? <laughs> Not being able to find a treehouse, we settle for an auto camp a quick two miles from Jubilee Villa, adjoining cabins. After two days of keeping Jubilee Villa under surveillance, we finally got a look at how Henser, Latimer, and Margot planned to play their trump card. 
kind of trap they had baited for a weak-minded stoner. Sweet music in the cool of the evening piped into the grape arbor. The grape arbor set with intimate tables, a canopy of freshly cut flowers, a few picked guests, and the local parson. A marriage was taking place. Margot and Stoner, with Latimer and Henster there to give the bride away. You're not going to let them get married. Shouldn't I? Shouldn't? Oh, Barry, you're teasing. Shh. I'll stop it, Blondie, but only at a strategic moment. The strategic moment came. The man in the high collar was reaching the end of his text. If any man knows some reason why this pair should not be joined in the bonds of matrimony, let him now speak. Speaking, stop the wedding. I'd played cop at Jubilee Villa fine, but I hadn't played Cupid so good. Linda left in my company, as it turned out, and not in Stuart Stoner's. That is, alias Stuart Stoner. Stuart is really Fabian Carlyle. So Latimer confessed. The Carlyles of Honolulu. Big shipping family. Will his amnesia... Might disappear, might reoccur. I'm not a doctor. I suppose I'll always regret it. Letting the rich one get away? Yes. So why did you? Stoner looked like he could be coaxed all over again. Oh, I'm sure I'll regret it. Want a last piece of advice? What, Barry? When you marry, have eight kids. With eight kids around, Dow, you're too busy for regrets. You have been listening to William Gargan in another exciting transcribed mystery drama from the adventures of Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Tonight's story, Midsummer Lunacy, was written by John Robert. Next week, it's the strange story of Blood Money about which Barry Craig has this to say. In next week's story, Blood Money, an oriental rug dealer finds himself as snug as a bug in a casket when a killer comes calling with gold in his eye. Good night, folks. See you next week. National Broadcasting Company has just brought you an NBC Radio Network production with William Gargan, starring as Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator, directed by Arthur Jacobson. Also heard Hilary Hall as Linda, Alice Backus as Margot, Tony Barrett as Latimer, George Neese as Stewart, and Herb Ellis as Henser. Eddie King speaking. Within the next 20 seconds, a fire will break out somewhere in the United States. Lives may be lost, property damaged, homes or buildings destroyed. Yes, there are 4,600 fires in America each day of the year. They kill 11,000 persons and disfigure or severely burn thousands more. The unfortunate part of this picture is that most of these fires could have been avoided. 
For example, 90% of all fires which start in the home can be traced to human carelessness. By obeying a few simple rules of fire prevention from now on, you and I can protect ourselves and our families from this devastating menace. Rule one is don't smoke in bed or discard lighted cigarettes carelessly. Rule two, clean out old newspapers, magazines, and other inflammable debris. Rule three, promptly repair defective wiring as soon as you notice it. Fire won't wait until tomorrow. Rule four, use only those cleaning fluids which will not burn. And last but not least, be careful with matches. Keep them out of the reach of small children. Remember, it doesn't pay to gamble with fire. The odds are against you every time. There's another exciting Dragnet adventure tonight on most NBC radio stations. <laughs>